Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and this week we're going to be talking with Emily Cohen about what's included in the sales process, including proposals and contracts. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this podcast, FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software designed and built for creative professionals to help us send our clients branded invoices, take online payments, monitor our profits, expenses, and so much more. It's a superb system and it's beautifully designed. And um, I just recommend that you, you go check it out for yourself. And you can do that with a free 30-day trial. And to uh, check that out, just head over to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek and be sure to enter Logo Geek in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So in previous episodes, we've talked about pricing and I've also created some useful blogs with the support of the Logo Geek community to help us find logo design clients too. But I've not yet put together any decent resource to help you guys with the sales process. So a few months back, I went searching for an ideal person to discuss sales with, to talk about qualifying clients and creating quotes, proposals, contracts, and so on from a designer's perspective. So I spoke with a few friends in the design community, and I was recommended to talk to someone called Emily Cohen, who became this week's guest. Now, Emily describes herself as a brutally honest consultant who provides strategic business advice to creative firms and she's helped these companies become more effective, profitable and fun to work at. She really knows her stuff. So I've invited her on as a guest to kind of demystify some parts of the sales process, including qualifying clients, proposals, contracts and so much more it's a really informative discussion so i hope that you find this episode useful so guys here is the interview with emily cohen i understand that once you've actually got a telephone call from a client or or an, an email you would aim to qualify the client can you talk through how you would go about doing that sure Absolutely. So people call it qualification. Other people call it vetting. However you want to call it. It's basically that to understand that when you talk to people, those are your leads, right? Mm -hmm. And those leads, some of them, only some of them will turn into prospects. And the prospects are the ones that are possibly calling you for new business. But even within the prospects, imagine it being a funnel. There are fewer, even more fewer than those prospects that will turn into clients. To look at them in three ways. One is if they're qualified to work with you. In other words, do they fit your business model? Do you qualify? Did they qualify you? Did they like look at your website and do the due diligence to make sure that you are the right firm? Because a lot of clients just kind of come to you willy nilly and they might not have gone to your website or they might not know what they're doing or, you know, whatever. So it's qualifying to make sure they've done their due diligence, but also qualifying to see if the project fits your studio. So it's not only the client, but the project. So to me, qualification is about asking some really good, solid questions and not to be afraid of questions. A lot of designers, when they first meet with prospects, they're always asking questions that designers really care about, which is like, who's, what's their strategy? Who's their target audience? And those questions are nice to know, and it makes you look smart by asking those questions. But those are not the kinds of questions that help you decide if that's the client you want to work for. So you have to kind of intersperse more important questions to help you qualify the prospect and turn into a client. Um, 
And so asking some questions that really help you define that. So obviously, one of the biggest questions is what their budget is. But a lot of people look at things like how cool the project is. If it's something designers like to look at projects like, oh, this will be a great project for my team, or it really is so much fun, or they're a big name. That's not the only way to look at a client. There's certainly those are important things because you want to do work that you love and you want to work for clients that have some clout. But it might be other things like, does it fit your positioning? Uh, what's the scope of engagement? Some people like to work on long-term projects. Other people like to work on shorter-term projects. Um, what's the future potential? Are you looking for a client that's going to be there for the long-term? How many stakeholders? That's also a really good question. Um, and I think that's one of the questions that you should really ask up front is, really to understand that and to be kind of advisory. So if you're, say, working for an NGO or a nonprofit and uh, they just say it'll be me as the stakeholder, you know that's not true because with NGOs and nonprofits, there's the board of, you know, there's the directors and the board, right, board of advisors. And so really asking questions to say, well, what about the board of advisors? Um, also aggravation factor, what I call aggravation factor it's like, it's a personal fit. You know, reading those kinds of aggravation factors is really important. Like how much, what are the red flags that are kind of showing up loud and clear? Um, I also think designers have a tendency not to look at those because they just are so excited that they want to work with them that they kind of, uh, I don't know how to say it, but they either ignore or don't really put enough weight on those red flags. And obviously schedule expectations. So you want to ask some really good questions and that's kind of the qualification process. Mm -hmm. You mentioned then about red flags that you might potentially notice. Can you talk through some of those that, that you might want to look out for? Yeah. So red flags are definitely different for each one of us. So what drives me crazy or what drives you crazy might be completely different things. So you have to identify what drives you crazy. So my running joke is for me, because I'm a New Yorker, Anybody that talks slow drives me crazy is my red flag because I don't really have time for, I want somebody to get right to the point. <laughs> you know, to me, that would drive me crazy and it would make my work much longer because I'd be on the phone forever and in meetings longer. But for you, there might be other red flags. Um, some of the general big red flags that are always kind of consistent is the number of stakeholders. Obviously, I just mentioned that. The more stakeholders, the more that's a big red flag. Um, but other stakeholders might be they keep you on the phone too long or they don't respect your time. So they constantly reschedule or they're late to meetings or late to calls or they don't pay attention to meetings or they, they um, are distracted during the meetings or they're not prepared. You know, a lot of clients say, well, I'm going to send you all this material. And if they don't send it to you as promised by when they were going to promise it, then you know that when you actually work with them, they're going to do the same thing. And just kind of understanding those personality quirks. You know, are they a generally nice person? Is it somebody that you connect with and you like? If there's any sign of like them being an asshole, you know, or kind of, or something, some person that's not nice, then you really should pay attention to it. Or they value budget over anything else, or they mention money all the time. That's a big red flag. So I think you just have to pay attention to whatever red flags you think are important and sort of literally count them. Like how many red flags are there in this project? And for every red flag, you increase the project fee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know from personal experience, I've had um, uh, situations where uh, there, there's one guy who wanted to get hold of me and he literally called my phone about 10 times within an hour. And I'm like, if this guy is like this now, oh, yeah. what's he going to be like when you when he's paid me some money? Um, so I think, like you said, it, how they are 
uh, during the sales process is how they're going to be to work with. So if there are no fun during the sales yep. process, then you don't want to be working with those people. Yeah, no, that's a perfect example. I mean, there are clients, right, that just want to pick up the phone and they want you to be there no matter what. Yeah, that guy was aggressive. You know? He was very aggressive yeah. with with his um, uh, approach just to get in touch and it just I felt very uncomfortable, so yeah. I, um, you know, politely turned that client aw- away. And it leads me on to another question. Since we're on uh, red flags, if we do have a client that we don't want to work with, how would you recommend that we turn down those clients that are not a good fit for us? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that's very hard for designers because designers are people pleasers. And they're so afraid of not being yeah. liked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a tendency, whenever I have a question or a difficult situation, I much prefer as much as possible to be truthful and honest. You know, my mom and my dad made me, uh, when I was growing up, they only had one philosophy, which is honesty is always the best policy. And uh, I've learned to really live and breathe by that because I think if you tell the clients and prospects the truth, You'll be surprised how much they'll appreciate that truth. Um, you have to soften the blow a little bit, so you don't have to be brutally honest, which is a lot of my style. But you know, just be a little bit more um, gentle in how you say it, but say it in a direct way. So, some the only thing I would say is when you turn down work, never mention schedule like you don't have the time to do it right now, because what'll happen is that just postpones the inevitable, and they might say, "But well, we'll wait. We'll wait for when you're free." So if you're going to use the schedule excuse, um, make sure you're willing to work with them again in the future. Otherwise, they might come back. Um, typically, I would say things like, like again, but going back to the truth, unfortunately, that budget doesn't seem quite within our range. Um, your budget's a little bit low. And you can also say, and this might sound painful, but you can say that might be better suited to a freelancer or to a student. You know, So you can frame their fee based in context to give them some sense of like their budget's ridiculous and they should work with a student. Um, but you could also, th- you know, so some of them might be that right now, one of my, my favorite excuses is to simply say that the kind of project that is, we already have a lot of those kinds of projects in house and we're looking for a little bit more diversity. So this type of project is not quite fitting your current business model, or you only take a certain number of those at any given point. So Again, I think it's based on the truth, but framing it in a nice way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that because I know in the past when I've not wanted to work with someone, I've literally said, unfortunately, I don't have any availability for the next like three or four months. And then they come back <laughs> and uh, yeah, you don't, exactly. you just like, don't want to work with them. And <laughs> it feels very yeah. awkward that, you know, you kind of have to make an excuse again. So I think you are right. It is um, best to be um, honest in, in a nice way yeah. if that's possible. <laughs> and you'll find also, you'll be, I'm always amazed also sometimes how clients will work yeah. with you. So for one of the, like if, if there's too many stakeholders, I'd much prefer to say, well, I typically find that projects with any more than three stakeholders requires a lot more revisions, a lot more work, and your budget doesn't allow for that. They might say, oh, well, maybe we can reduce the number of stakeholders, you know? And so there's sometimes there's conversations which make which kind of educate the client, right? Because they if you, if you if you built the love, I talk a lot about that too. If you built the love, in other words, they love you already and they want to work with you. And you've come through referrals and they um, people have recommended you or they know you're an expert and you have the right positioning. Clients will try to accommodate your needs at the beginning of a relationship, and then you frame that relationship in a much you started off on a much better foot. So sometimes you know. 
even if you've tried to turn down the client and they're willing to change, you might give them the chance, but understanding, putting those things in the, saying, this is what we agreed on. We agreed on two stakeholders and you, you know, and if they all of a sudden come in, another stakeholder comes in, you can say, remember the reason why I turned it down originally was because I didn't want to work with all these stakeholders, you know, so we have to go back to these two stakeholders. So there's a lot of education that happens also during that time. Mm-hmm. That sounds like fantastic advice. Uh, so thank you. Now we spoke about the the bad side and kind of getting rid of clients that we don't necessarily want to work with and and qualify them. So um, I, I think we need to go down the the positive route. So in the event that the call went well and the client's a good fit, I, I understand that you, what you would do next is create a proposal. Yes. Can you talk through for the listeners what a, what a proposal is and why you feel it's needed? Uh, well, first of all, I don't care what you call things. There's a lot of different words for things. Proposal, estimate, uh, statement of work. I don't care what, there's lots of different words for those things. I think to me what a proposal is, it could be any one of those words, but it basically is a document that outlines First of all, let me just start with saying a proposal usually comes after you've built the love. So it's not a, it's very rarely a document that sells the client on your capabilities in terms of like, are you fit for them and showing them your work? Because you should have done that before the proposal even sent, unless it's an RFP or a request for proposal. So a proposal to me is once you've qualified the client and they've fallen in love with you, it's simply a document that outlines the parameters of the project. So the scope of work, sort of like what components you're going to do for them, what the deliverables are, what the scope of work is in terms of number of phases, the type of phases and the number of concepts, number of revisions, and the fee. It's not a contract. That's the other thing I think proposals a lot of times come with the legal terms and conditions attached to them. And that is never a good thing because that always stops the conversation cold. I typically separate proposals and contracts. So I first get them to fall in love with me. Then I write the proposal. Once they've negotiated the proposal and they're happy with everything, then what happens is then you send the letter of agreement and it's much easier negotiation, your terms and conditions, because they've already agreed to work with you and more than likely they've rejected all the other, your other competitors. And so the contract comes to them and they're, they're happy to just talk to you about it and it doesn't become a big battleground. But when you attach your terms and conditions to a proposal, it stops the conversation cold because a lot of other designers do not do that. And then the client will also focus on the terms and conditions and not the scope of work. So to me, to answer your that was a long answer to a very short question. A proposal is to outline the scope of work, the expectations, and to frame your fees, to tell them what they're going to get for the price you're charging, to demonstrate the value of why that fee is what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you went into it fairly high level there, but um, my next question is, what would you typically include in a proposal? Yeah, so it depends. Again, it really depends on the relationship. Typically, there's a few different uh, kind of sections. Uh, the first one is sort of like an overview of just a one sentence statement about what the project is, integrated communication system, uh, website, whatever. It's just a big picture kind of overview to soften the kind of to introduce the proposal. Then you have a more detailed, what I call project component section, which is you might give into details about if this is an integrated marketing communications program, it includes, and then under the project components, it might include a logo, a brochure, and that would say eight to 12 page brochure plus cover. It would just give like rough specs or rough expectations of what the pieces are that you'll be doing for the project. So if it's a website, you would talk about 
roughly how many, um, how big a site it is and the complexity of the site. Um, or if it's a WordPress site versus a Squarespace site versus, you know, a much more backend rich site. Um, so you, there you'd have project component section. Then I, I, my favorite section is objective section is the project objective sections. And that is just a bulleted list of all the stuff that you heard them say at the client meeting to sound smart and to sound like you listened. So, you know, it's maybe eight to 10 bullets of things that the project's goals or objectives are like this, this, uh, branding needs to, uh, to reposition the brand to be more exciting and whatever, you know, it might be that we want to corral various opinions across different users. Um, it might be to, I don't know, uh, increase brand brand awareness. So you would just kind of write down some of the key objectives. And a lot of those are kind of can be a little bit generic, but as much as you can be specific to what they said in the meetings, it just is a way for you to sound smart and to sound like you listen to the client. So that's the project objectives. And then you go into the scope of work. And the scope of work is the most important section of any proposal. It goes, it has phases. So what a phase would be, would be something like big picture, like research and discovery or concept development. And then within each phase, there would be a detailed description of what the process and deliverables will be. And I like to quantify it by saying, if you're going to develop concepts, how many concepts? So up to three concepts, one concept, whatever. And then not only how many, but to what? So for a concept development, you'll say two to three concepts. And you might say it's applied to three compo- components. It might be applied to, I don't know, the cover of the, a cover and a sample spread of the brochure and an email blast, whatever. You'd be very specific about what you're doing um, under each of the phases. And not only the quantifying, but you also want to quantify revisions. So how many rounds of revisions and what type of revisions is really important as well. So are they major or minor revisions? Are they type revisions? Are they concept revisions? Are they layout revisions? Being very specific about what the process is and what your deliverables are um, is what the scope of work is and is under each phase. And then you just simply have another section that's usually the fee section. So what the fees are. And that there's a whole strategy around how do you do that? And then there's usually just some language at the end that says what kind of big exclusions are or big assumptions are. So if you're assuming, for instance, if you're doing this is for a restaurant branding, let's say, and you're making the assumption for the fee that it's based on only one location, that's not something you want to wait in the contract for. You want to put that in the proposal to make sure that they understand that your fee is based on only one location. Um, I very rarely put usage rights in the proposal unless it's very much framing the fee. Also, like if the fee does not include printing or expenses, you might want to make sure you're clear about that or if it does include writing. So you might want to include things that are not, that are excluded from the fee that you think the client might think are included, like writing, proofreading. Then you might also just end with something like once this proposal is approved, we will issue our terms and conditions for a final sign off. It doesn't include payment schedule. It doesn't include any terms and conditions because that will be in your contract. So that's kind of the kind of breakdown of a proposal. If the proposal is going to, like if you've built the love, like I've talked about, you might not have to need to have any qualifications in there, but if it's still going to other people to look at it, then you might also include qualifications like your team bios and you know sample case studies, things like that. 
That was perfect. Thank you for that. So you mentioned about creating the proposal and then a a separate contract which details down kind of what you agreed or the terms and conditions. Um, I know you briefly went into this, but can you just expand on like, what is the reason why you would actually do those two as separate items? Because uh, in the past, I've kind of combined them together. And what I would describe as a proposal I kind of combined in a quote and you know they can sign it at the back Uh what's the reason why you would do those two separately because the minute you put terms and conditions in the client is going to focus on that and nothing else and or they're going to send it to their lawyer and it's going to stop the conversation cold so you might not it's going to it'll decrease your chances of winning the proposal significantly I've seen it time and again And also many creatives do not put their terms and conditions in until after they've approved the proposal um, because they don't want to scare them off. What the terms and conditions do is simply scare the clients off. And I'd rather wait till they agree to work with you, which is the proposal. And then when you give, once they've agreed to the proposal, they're probably going to reject all your competitors and they're going to, because they're going to say, we chose the right firm and they're really excited about the firm that they selected. So when you submit your terms and conditions, it's so much of an easier conversation and it's more of a conversation and less of a negotiation. They're like, okay, we're having some issues. Let's talk about it. Because then you're just having a conversation about the terms and you'll, because obviously contracts never get approved as is. You want it, there is some back and forth. Um, so I like to have them as separate documents almost always. Um, every once in a while, there'll be an RFP where they require your terms and conditions. And a lot of my clients push back on that, but once they do it, they realize how much that increases their win rate. So I would recommend that you try it. I will tell you, honestly, it's going to work. Yeah, I I like the way that you've done it because it kind of sounds like the proposal is kind of like all the nice, happy, fun, exciting stuff. Well, it still has fees in there, though. (laughs) Well, I mean, it can build up a a relationship with the with the client, and you know, they they understand exactly what what you're going to be doing for them. You can tell tell the client a little bit more about you and then the contract is kind of like okay now you picked us from all those other competitors we're definitely going ahead here's all the terms and conditions and everything yes. like that and you're not going to scare them off so I, I think that's really good advice and I, I know I definitely need to do that myself because I've always bundled it in as one and and there have been times when I have lost the client at that point and I've not known why and that's probably the reason why so Um, That's really good advice. You just said that better than I did. So, (laughs) I just want to take a short break to tell you guys a little bit more about FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode of the podcast. And without them, I just simply couldn't justify the time to do this for you. So what is FreshBooks? It's a cloud accounting software for creative professionals that allows you to be more productive and organized. I remember when I started my business, I was keeping track of my money in an Excel spreadsheet and creating my invoices in InDesign. Yes, it kind of did the job at that time, but as I got more clients, it quickly became messy. So when I started using FreshBooks, it saved so much time and my processes felt so much more professional. My invoices still look great. They were all branded up and my profits and expenses were so nicely organized and so easy to see in a beautifully designed dashboard. I mean, guys, you have to go and check it out. FreshBooks looks stunning. If this sounds like a useful tool for you, I suggest taking advantage of the free 30-day trial. Now, if you want to claim that, just head over to freshbooks.com 
forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to the interview with Emily Cohen. So I understand that you work as a consultant at the moment. How did you get into that? As I believe that I read that you used to be a graphic designer. Yeah, so I went to graphic design school. The joke is I know what kerning is. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, I was a designer and graduated, have a BFA in design. And I actually worked as a designer of a magazine. And then I worked um, at a designer at Pottery Barn. And then I um, worked at a design studio Um and so I did that for about six years or so, or maybe a little less. And what I realized is that I love design and I was very involved in the, in, in America, we have the AIGA. Um, I was very involved in the AIGA and I loved the design community, but I wasn't a good designer <laughs> and I'm super ambitious. And I thought, oh no, I don't want to do this the rest of my life because I'll never really, I saw that there were so many other more talented people than I was. And I don't, I don't think I even had the passion for design itself. So I really was, um, struggling with what to do. Um, and you know, now it's called pivoting. So I had to pivot. Um, and what I did basically did was ask everybody I knew, like, what should I do? You know, what do I need to do? What do I do? And, um, everybody I met, like everybody, my clients, my, the people, I, my peers, my colleagues, people at the AIJ, everybody was like, you're really a good people person. You're great at organizing and managing. You're, you're just a good, you know, manager. You're super organized and you should do that. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what that means. Um, because back then when I started my career in design, at least there was no title of project manager at the time. There really wasn't. It was just a bunch of designers, um, and there really wasn't a role of project managers. There were like account managers in agencies, but in design, there really wasn't. And so I sort of um, created the role um, for, so I went out and asked about seven design firms that I admired. And I said, hey, I have all these skills. What do you think? And they're like, we want to hire you. And I don't think it was because I was awesome. I think it was because they honestly had never heard of somebody doing that and they could use it. So I um, became a project manager and I did that. Actually, I turned into an executive resident within a year. Um, and basically, I ran a studio from five people to 50 people. Um, and I learned a lot about managing people, managing clients, managing projects, pricing, proposal writing, negotiating, pretty much everything. And um, and the word, you know, so I'm sure this is like this where you are, but in New York and now in America, the, the, the our design world is very incestuous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all know everybody else, right? Um and so the word spread very quickly that there was this woman out there that, you know, knew design, but also could write a proposal or could talk to your clients. And so I started building up a freelance business, consulting with various design firms. Um, my very, very first client was Lloyd Zipf. I don't know if you know Lloyd, but he was a famous designer. Um, he was part of the Condé Nast creative director team, and um, he um, was my very, very first client. So I was, I was honored to work with not only an amazing designer, but somebody who was um, pretty famous. And so he gave me all his famous friends. So I ended up building a niche of, so I work with kind of top tier design firms. And that doesn't mean they are their size. It means the quality of the work has been recognized by their peers and by clients. And so many of my clients are either top tier designers or who have potential to be top tier designers. Um, and so I've been honored to work with mostly small to mid-sized design firms. I typically focus on, you know, firms anywhere between one person and 30 person firms because anywhere, any bigger than that, they usually have somebody full time doing what I do. Um, 
And really what I mostly focus on is taking, is kind of evaluating their current state and helping them to evolve their business practices and looking at positioning and new business strategies and pricing and proposals and staffing and client and process management, and really looking at all angles of their business within context of each other to say, you know, so if they have a problem, like if they call me and say, we want to talk about pricing, it's very hard to talk about pricing without looking at how they do new business and how they talk about themselves and how they position themselves. So I'd like to look at their entire business within context. Um, and I just really love what I do because I work with, I mean, designers are awesome human beings. <laughs> so really, I love what I do. And it, I think that shows because I love what I do and I love who I work with. And so I end up becoming their friend and um, their trusted advisor. And um, I can get to yell at them, which I love to do because, you know, some of my clients need to be yelled at once in a while. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It, it sounds like you work really closely with your clients. Like, how do you normally actually carry out the consultations? How, how does that work? Well, yeah, so I have anywhere between, you know, 30 to, you know, 10 to 30 clients at any given moment. And I work a lot of times, um, I usually, the, the way my consulting works is either virtually or in person. And it's not, they don't pay me hourly. I'm not like a freelancer. I'm definitely a consultant. So I'll come in and I have different packages and services. A lot of what I do is what's called strategic business planning retreats which is I spend a whole day with um, the principals of the firm that I'm working with and help them evaluate their current business state and develop a plan for how they can move forward and evolve their business practices and their business firm. So um, my most, a lot of my relationships are long-term that start with the retreat and then st I stay on for the long-term to help them grow and develop. So, you know, at any given moment, I'm helping a client. So right now I'm working with a designer who's hiring. So they're, I'm working with helping them hire and vet a candidate. I'm working with, I'm doing some leadership retreats for about six different clients. I do a lot of process workshops to look at how you how you how you um, manage a project from start to finish. Um, you know, I can help my clients. Basically, I'm sort of their virtual partner. Anytime they have a challenge or they have a question, I'm there for them because I'm with them for the most part for the long term. So I understand that you work with agencies. Do you also work with uh, solopreneurs and uh, small business owners too? Yes. So I do work with small business owners if they um, do good work and are ready to grow. So I do believe, and this might be something that um, will cause a little conflict. Um, I don't believe that you could, um, that being a one person firm is sustainable. It, it's fine if you just want to make a certain level of income and not grow. But if you want to grow, and I'm not talking growth in terms of um, necessarily um, money, but in terms of being able to do the better kind of work and expand your client base, you need to have staff because it's, you know, to run a business has so many levels to it that um, you need people to help you to do that. Like you need people to do the design so you can get new business. You need people to help you. Um, you know, you need to spend time thinking about the visionary business. Um, so I think that I do have several, actually I have several, um, solopreneurs who are at the stage where they're ready to think about what's next. How do they get beyond where they are? You know, they sort of stagnate, but my clients are anywhere between one person firms and 30 person firms. I, I actually agree with what you say about solo businesses not being sustainable. 
Like, um, I, I do think that there are people out there that, that can still be successful doing this. Um, but from my experience so far, as, as a small business owner, and to give some context to that, I actually work for an agency part of the week, uh, which used to be a full-time position, but now um, that's just a three-day-a-week job, and the rest of the time I um, focus on my own uh, business. But based on like the, the two years I've been working like this now, I can see that there's real limitations on what you can actually do on your own due to um, time limitations. So like once you've actually booked out all of all of your time, which I frequently do, you end up needing to basically turn away work and and it restricts the amount of work that you can actually do for current clients too, unless you do start working with other with other um, designers out there. So I can see how you can easily lose those clients to other people. Now I I just feel that. Um, unless you get leads coming in consistently and, and thankfully I'm in that position um, at the moment, you you can't really keep it sustainable, as you mentioned. Um, there's always going to be limitations. So I do believe, based on my experience so far, that in order to grow your business and fully support your, your clients' needs, you do need to start employing other people to help you, as you mentioned. I would say to you, I agree with you a little bit, but I also disagree in that it's not only if you have lots of work coming in, it's still not sustainable because you're allowing your people, the people that are reaching to you, your inbound um, new business to take your business to the direction that, you know, you might not want it to go. So you're allowing other people to derive the direction of your business. The reason why I say a lot of times one person firms are not uh, sustainable is not really about the work. It's more about, do you have the focus to really look at business, keep improving it? So do you have time to do new business? Do you have time to develop um, winning proposals? Do you have time to develop marketing materials? Do you have time to think about your business future? Um, and a lot of that means that you can't design, that you have to spend more time thinking about your business. You know, if you want to just do great design work, then you should get a job. I really believe that you have a business, your job as the principal of the firm is to focus on the business and let other great creatives do the creative and you can be a creative director. Um, so I think a lot of times, it's not so much that you have great referrals because all designers really do have referral networks. It's really about trying to get those kind of clients in. So it's more about outbound marketing is trying to get the kind of clients that you want, not just simply bring in, you know, get the clients that are coming to you because not all the clients that are coming to you are qualified. Um, but if you go out to the kind of clients, then you could change the direction of your business. Yeah, but I agree. I mean, I do think that, and, and I don't, I don't think success and sustainability are the same thing. Like you still might be successful as a one person firm, but what defines it success for you might be just money or it might be the, that you're just happiness, you know, and that's fine. I have a lot of um, clients who are one person firms that don't want to grow. Um, and they just are very happy where they are. They are making decent money. Like I'm sort of a one person, you know, consultant. I have no desire to be you know, crazy wealthy. And I only want to work with great people. So I'm very picky about who I work with. Um, and I travel so much, so I didn't, I chose specifically not to have employees. Um, but I then also, as a lot of people do have a, a posse of resources that I can bring in if I need help. So based on what you said here, if you are a freelancer, solopreneur or single person business, do you have any advice for taking your business to that next level to start building a team? Like I know one of my concerns with bringing in an extra person is that I would need to suddenly um, double my income to pay that person and myself. So it, I don't know. It just feels like a huge risk whilst 
working for myself at the moment just feels comfortable as I have full control over everything. So based on that, do you have any advice for myself and those people out there who might want to take that leap of faith to to start employing extra people so they so that they can grow their business? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. It's a risk. And I think if you are not a risk taker, you shouldn't have a business because part of having a business is taking a risk, right? Um, and one of the risks is hiring. Um, and I often tell people this and they hate hearing this, but it works every single time. You sometimes have to hire before you can aff- afford to. You should you you need to hire when you can't afford not to. And what I mean by that is you're getting so much work and you're turning down work, or you're not sending out messages to your to your prospects that you can take on the bigger projects or more work because they know you're just one person firm. But if the minute you hire, even if you can't afford it, um, a lot of times, almost always, the work will come in. It's amazing to me. I'm a you know my husband calls this my kumbaya style of consulting, but I believe in the universe. You know, I'm not a religious person, but I believe in the universe. And if you send out messages to the universe that says, "I have staff now." the work will come and you will not struggle in terms of making the money. And if you do, then you have to, I always recommend to people that when they hire that they first should not have any debt. Like if you have any debt, you can't hire. Um, and also they should uh, uh, roughly have about three months of income of overheads saved. So you really shouldn't hire until you have those two things done, no debt and at least three months of overhead. Um, but once you do, hiring is much easier than you think. Um, and sometimes you might have to not, you know, might have to lower your salary at, during slow months, but that's why you have a line of credit with the banks. Um, but for the most part, almost every one of my clients who I've convinced to take that leap have seen, have had no problem paying salaries that they need to pay for the person to, for them to hire. It just works out because you're sending out messages and you're feeling more confident in who you are and you're able to take on work and sell work and talk about your firm in such a different way that the work comes to you much faster. So how do you know what roles to start out with? A senior designer. That's the answer. Well, okay. And, and then um, as the business owner, you would just focus on bringing in the sales and uh, basically running the business. Yeah. It's such a tricky one. If people are graphic designers and and I know a lot of the listeners of this podcast will be I think they're going to really struggle um with the fact that they're no longer actually doing the uh design work themselves yes but it's it's making the leap to become a creative director so it's not it's still you're still a designer but you're being less hands-on you're much more of a creative director and you know I will tell you some of my clients have had struggles with it but then they've embraced the creative director role quite nicely Um, but that's kind of like, if you want to just be a designer and do just design, like a literally hands-on designer, then get a job in a company that you love. You know, to me, having a business is not about doing hands-on work. It's being a creative director and managing a firm and being entrepreneurial and being a risk taker, you know, and, um, wanting to grow and, and wanting what's next. Um, it doesn't mean you, you can't be a designer. Like all my clients all design still do hands-on design, but it's just a smaller percentage of what they do. I read a book called The E-Myth Revisited, and I'm sure that's one that you've read. Mm-hmm. And it really stresses the importance of working on your business rather than in your business. Exactly. If you want it to be a success. And I think a lot of your arguments for um, growing your business beyond uh, one person reminds me of that book. Um, I know 
as a solopreneur myself, it's it's hard to um, even take holidays. Um, I often need to plan well in advance, and even then, I I still need to do a little bit of work now and again. So, um, you know, you can't really switch off, yeah. and and in those cases, I'm pretty much turning away work and losing loads of opportunities. Yeah. So, like just based on that alone it's just not sustainable yeah. so like uh, what you said is is very good advice well that's uh, the benefit of working because i've worked with so many design firms across the country um well at least across the united states and canada um i have a few clients over abroad but um the benefit of that is i get to learn from my clients you know so all the knowledge i know is is not only just me being brilliant it's it's my client being brilliant as well my clients teach me every day something new and I love that about what I do. So all that kind of like advice that I did give, it's a lot of it based on the trials and the tribulations of my clients and, and how they've grown. It's been awesome. It really does sound like, you know, um, your stuff and um, you've given a lot of very good advice in this episode. So I, I think um, for anyone out there that, that does want to learn more about you and, and how um, they can work with you as a consultant, I'll be sure to add any links to your website and any books in the show notes for this episode. If they're ready to work with a consultant, they should look at all the different people um, that are out there and pick the one that's best for them because we're all slightly different. So Emily, thank you so much for, for being a guest. It's been really fun chatting with you. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. I'm sorry I didn't. the connection wasn't so great. Now, what a great episode, Emily. Thank you so much. And for people that listen to this, you probably won't realize this, but we actually ended up needing to record this episode twice due to a few technical issues. So for her patience, Emily, I just have to say thank you so much again for being understanding and for being willing to re-record some parts of the interview again. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Emily, go and visit her website, emilycohen.com. And be sure to check out her book, Brutally Honest, for more advice and insights from Emily. Links to this and anything else mentioned in this episode, along with a transcription of the interview, can be found in the show notes for this episode. And you can find those by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash 3.4. Now, guys, I want to ask you a favor. If you love the podcast, please can you write an iTunes review? Now, they sadly don't make it easy for me to tell you where to go. So um, if you do have five minutes to spare and you're happy to kind of work your way through it, just head over to iTunes, search for Logo Geek, and hopefully when you get to the page, you'll see a writer review button on the left-hand side. Once you have been able to write a review, let me know. And as a thank you, I will give you a personalized shout-out on the next episode. Now, if you're keen to meet other like-minded designers from around the world, head over to the Logo Geek community on Facebook, which has now grown over to over 5,000 designers. To be part of that, all you need to do is head over to logogeek.uk forward slash community, and I look forward to seeing you there. Now, that's it for this week. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek podcast.